This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. A new report sponsored by the Ontario Power Generation says that if the Ontario government keeps the Pickering nuclear plant open, it makes economic sense and the move would add a total of $12.3 billion to the GDP. To talk more about all of this and the future of nuclear energy in this province, Tom Adams is with us, independent energy and environmental consultant. He is with us now. Tom, thanks for taking the time. We always appreciate this. Hey, Scott, how are you? I'm doing well. So, Tom, what is the future? What is the current status and the future of, of Ontario's uh, nuclear facilities? Okay, so we got good news and bad news. The, the good news is that um, uh, uh, Ontario's nuclear power fleet has been a reliable provider uh, uh, for a long time. It's producing 60% of our electricity supply. Um, uh, the average cost that uh, customers are paying today uh, for that power is some of the cheapest. If you compare to the other sources of generation by technology, you know, hydroelectric, wind, solar, gas, whatever. Um, uh, so, it, it, you know, it, it, there's uh, n- nuclear is very important uh, uh, today and into the future for Ontario's electricity supply. The, the bad news is that all of our nuclear plants are very old. And um, uh, the ability of those plants to operate at high level of output, at relatively affordable uh, operating costs, those days are numbered. And um, uh, this, this is fundamental to my, I sometimes say to people that, you, you know, in the relatively near future, we are likely to look back at 2018 as the good old days of um, uh, when electricity used to be way more affordable. Um, uh, the, the outlook for Ontario's nuclear plants is that their, um, their production will decline and uh, their costs are going to go up a lot. And this is going to have huge impact on us, and we should get ready for it. So is this about a series of normal maintenance things that have to be done on an aging facility? Is this talking about a rebuild? Is this Band-Aid solutions? What does the future hold? Okay, so, um, uh, so we've got a fleet of nuclear power plants. And each of them has its own story, it, it, you know, each of these different reactor stations. So in the case of uh, uh, both Bruce and Darlington, um, those are plants that have a, a, a design that makes them relatively inexpensive to operate when um, they're in good shape. And uh, so both of those stations are receiving uh, extensive refurbishment investment to keep them going in the longer term. And, and we'll see how that works out. Um, uh, that's, 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 a, that's very big money and, uh, and, and, and uh, you know, a huge uh, impact on what our electricity system is going to look like in 2020, 20, and, and, and well beyond. With the Pickering Station, the story is quite different. 
those reactors are uh, use a much earlier design. So uh, these are reactors that went into service, some of them in 1971, well, throughout the 1970s and early 1980s was when these reactors came into service. The designs for them relate back to the 50s and 60s. Um, and one of the fundamental problems with Pickering is that they just require a lot of staff. If you drive by the Pickering nuclear plant down, you know, to the east of Toronto, right, um, there's a huge parking lot. Actually, there's several huge parking lots. There's thousands of people work there. And uh, and all these people are very highly paid and, and, you know, very highly expert and a lot of years of training and whatnot. Um, but that makes them really expensive. And uh, so the high cost of operating Pickering is fundamental to the design, and it is not fixable if we were to continue operating those units. Like, there's not a better way to run Pickering so that you just need less staff. What was the life expectancy of Pickering when it was constructed? Well, the original design life was 30 years. Um, uh, and, And then in the 1980s, the oldest units of, of Pickering, 1983, um, uh, the, the two units of Pickering experienced a, a, a serious accident, and uh, there was a major refurbishment of the reactor core. Um, it, it took years and years and years to fix. Uh, um, uh, and then in the uh, around in, in 1998, um, uh, there was another major refurbishment that extended into 2003 with the Pickering reactors. Another huge refurbishment, you know, kind of a second heart transplant, especially for the oldest reactors. Um, and and this had this had a, a devastating financial impact on OPG, both of the and OPG's predecessors. But would this all have been predicted? I mean, you know, when we were first coming up with nuclear energy back in the 70s and such, you know, did we know 30, 40 years down that, you know, these are going to require major uh, expense or rebuild or what have you? I mean, what was the plan? Well, like I said, the original expectation was it would last for 30 years. And then what? Then what would you do with them? And then, and then you would shut them down forever. Mm. What turned out to be the case is we attempted on two occasions to rebuild the Pickering reactors. In both cases, we ended up with major economic headache. Mm. Um, uh, we, we'd been far further ahead. We not attempted the refurbishments. But that's and then what would the option have been there, though? If we decided we didn't want to refurbish the old plants, it was too expensive, what do you do? Close them down, build new ones? Well, like, that's, that's a critical question today, right? Um, uh, so, and of course, it was a, a major question historically when those reinvestments, you know, those refurbishment investments were, were made. It was assumed that we didn't have good alternatives. Um, today, the, uh, y- we know that Pickering is going offline in the, in the relatively near future. So uh, OPG is hoping to stretch them out until 2024, and we'll see how that goes. 
Um, uh, but, you know, one thing to appreciate is that as you get closer and closer to the drop-dead date, um, uh, the uncertainty about, you know, the factors that are going to cause the plant to go offline forever, those uncertainties build over time. So we really have a lot of, uh, it's not clear at all how, how much uh, longer uh, pickering can, can, can last. Um, you know, we're, we are, in, a, in some sense, we're squeezing the last drops of juice. Um, uh, but the, 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 the major question, I think, relates to what would we replace it with? Yeah. And that's my, that's, got, so would we build another one of these? Would we do it again? Well, th- there are some new nuclear plants that are being built in other parts of the developed world. Um, uh, it, it, so uh, Finland has one, or France has one under construction, the U.S. had, had several under construction, and they were just in the process of abandoning almost all the new construction that they had recently attempted. Um, How in, come? Well, in every case, when you look across the OECD countries, um, with the new nuclear plants that are uh, are being built, they, every one of them is a, just an unbelievable train wreck. Um, uh, and there are lo- different stories for each of these different locations. But like the the most mature, the most advanced of this these um, uh, construction projects is a project in Finland. Finland has a long and very successful history with nuclear power plants. They have some Western design plants. They have some Russian design plants that have operated very well. Um, so Finland really knows their nuclear, and um, they, they built um, the, the the they they started in 2005 the construction of a new um, a new design with modern uh, safety systems and the most advanced stuff um, a French German design that they started building. Um, it was supposed to take four years and and be completed for about uh, 3.6 billion euros. They're now they're not finished yet. Um, uh, you know this was supposed to be done in 2009. It's now 2018. Um, th- this project is m- many many times over budget. It, of course, uh, the delays are just uh, 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 unbelievable. Uh, the, the lawyers are having a field day suing each other. Uh, the, the, all of these, the, everybody involved in the project has got egg on their face. Um, and, and, and this is in a country where they really understand nuclear at a very high level. So there's a lot of dangers in, in trying to build new nuclear. New nuclear in Ontario right now is not an option. The options we got are, are basically twofold. One is we could import uh, more power from Quebec. I think that's a pretty expensive option, um, uh, be- partly because the transmission costs of doing it would be very uh, significant. A, a, a much more attractive option to me, if we, we, you know, at the time when we do have to get rid of uh, Pickering, so that's either sooner or later, Pickering's going to, in the foreseeable future, it's gone. Um, and the, the best option as a kind of stopgap for us is uh, to make better use of our existing fleet of natural gas-fired generation. I was so, just going to say, so here we go, back to natural gas, burning fossil fuels. Isn't this where the wind government started? Well... And, and let me yeah, ask you this. Let, right. me, let me ask you this too, Tom. I mean, 
you know, obviously, uh, you know, they're talking about leave, uh, keeping this thing running till 2024, which isn't that far away. Uh, we're also seeing our electricity rates go up once the refinance kicks in, probably about that time. So are we just heading for another energy train wreck here in this province? Oh, man. Oh, man. It, 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 like, I, 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 and where do, where do wind turbines fit in with Pickering going offline? Oh, they're, they're irrelevant. Um, uh, like w- one thing about the Pickering plants is that they've been reliable producers. These are they've they've been a, a source of supply that you can schedule and it delivers when customers need the power most. W- wind power doesn't do that. So uh, uh, you know, if you want to keep the lights on in the in the in the winter time and the heat waves in the summer, you need something that's reliable, and that's that's really why. The, the alternatives are either use our natural gas fire generation more or import from Quebec because we need something that's that has similar characteristics of reliability to the Pickering plant. The Pickering plants were not perfectly reliable. I, you know, I'm not making that claim, but mm. I, but compared to wind power, it's just night and day different in terms of reliability. So uh, we're just going to see more and more smaller uh, natural gas generating power plants throughout the province. Is that what we're going to see? Is that oh, the f- we, what, what is the future? What is the future? We, we don't need more natural gas power plants. We got lots and lots of natural gas fire uh, power plants. They're modern plants. They've got good pollution controls. They're, you know, we've got a good fleet of plants out there. The um, uh, some of these plants are operated at um, uh, annual production factor uh, of, of like around 3% of their, of their uh, rated capacity. So in other words, Pickering or these facilities eventually going offline, we have lots of power uh, when they do. We, we, we've got, we got solutions. Uh, uh, like we're not b- between a rock and a hard place on the on the on the Pickering decision, we, and and we really need to think carefully about how far we push that those those Pickering reactors to squeeze the last drops you know uh, yeah. uh, from them. That that's a that's a serious conversation that that we should have, and um, it, you know safety is a consideration there. We, these are old old machines. And so they they bump up against limits, and and uh, you know so uh, you know I think this is this is this is not just simply an economic question. You know the the ratepayer impacts here are critical, um, but they're not the only consideration that goes into it. And you know on the other side of the equation, if you're in that camp of you know those that think that that um, you know, f- uh, the emissions from fossil fuel combustion, CO2, is an absolutely critical issue, then y- you might be you know, more inclined to push Pickering harder uh, because it really is, uh, at least yeah. in the short run, an alternative to natural gas fire production. So what is the future of nuclear energy? Is that it? I mean, once these plants run their duration, is that it? Is, is it over? Is the, is the nuclear era over? I, um. Can you see it? Can you see us building another one? With the existing technologies that are out there, uh, you know, from the the state of the art designs, 
whether it's uh, Arriva, the, the, the Toshiba Westinghouse designs, or you know wh- wh- whatever, um, uh, the existing designs that are out there are completely unaffordable, ridiculous, stupid investments. Yeah, um, um, we should not do that. Um, uh, now, is there a, a you know future for a new concept for more affordable? nuclear energy i mean we got to keep our minds open to that possibility but um uh the the kind of reactors you you know that that they're trying to build in the u.s or they're trying to build in europe um uh like forget about it that's just that's crazy stuff um uh we, we we it's just not a practical solution for our electricity problems. So it looks like natural gas plants are the future moving forward. Oh, over I, and above I, what we're getting from hydroelectricity, of course. Yeah, yeah, that, uh, that that's right. So um, uh, you know, and again, if you take the view that um, that that fossil fuels cannot be used for for power generation, then that would tend to push us in the direction of importing more from Quebec. But the Quebec purchase option is not as easy as some people would have you believe. Um, uh, Ontario has a lot of transmission limitations uh, between uh, our grid and the Quebec grid. That would be uh, quite. It, it, that's those transmission limitations are are not a problem today. We have good relations with Quebec. We've got good flows of power back and forth and money and all those things. It's it's working nicely. So the existing relationship electrically with our neighbor, uh, um, you know, to the east is just dandy. But if we want to, to ramp it up where Quebec becomes a source of firm supply that, you know, delivered when we need it most in the wintertime, in the summertime, you know, when the... When the air conditioners kick on in the summertime, and 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 when the furnaces are all cranking in 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 Ontario, they're also cranking in Quebec. Um, uh, they experience a cold winter over there, by the way, and uh, so when their system is at, at its peak demand requirement, our system is also at one of its peak seasonal demand requirements in the winter time. And so that that all makes it a lot more difficult to depend on Quebec as a source of supply if we're if we're using them as an alternative for the reliable nuclear supply that we've been getting from Pickering. Is Pickering safe to use till 2024, in your opinion? That's a really heavy duty question. Um, uh, and one, one of the, one of the things we've learned from reactor accidents in other parts of the world, Japan especially. Uh, uh, reveal the importance of having independent regulation of the of reactor safety. Uh, um, uh, when the the Fukushima accident happened in Quebec and in, in Japan, in the aftermath of that accident, w- one of the really deep soul searching um, uh, uh, measures that Quebec that, that that Japan pursued was to study their regulatory system to to see. You know what went wrong, and one of the things they identified was they had conflicted interests. Where the regulator, the nuclear safety regulator, was also really in charge of promoting nuclear power, 
And, and that's a bad practice. Uh, hmm. we, we should learn not to do that with airline safety and, you know, hazardous good transportation, all kinds of stuff. You can't have conflicts of interest and regulation. It's a basic principle. And uh, unfortunately, we've allowed that to, I think, creep into the way we regulate nuclear. So I, I'm not comfortable with the way we regulate nuclear. I think there's, you know, more independence required there. But, but the, you know, the detailed questions about how far you push the metallurgy of the reactor core, that's heavy-duty stuff. Uh, uh, and, and it needs, a, it, you know, it needs a lots of transparency and, 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 and critical thought. Uh, uh, you know, I, I'm really uncomfortable about the idea hmm. of politicians making those decisions. Tom Adams has been with us, Independent Energy and Environmental Consultant. A new report sponsored by Ontario, Penerge, uh, Ontario Power Generation says they'd like to keep it going until 2024. Tom, thanks for the time, as always. Much appreciated. Right on, Scott. Thank you. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Lots of chatter going on around trade and tariffs and, and protectionism. And it's it's bizarre when you think about it because uh, it seems one week things are going, well, let's be honest, bad. And then the next week they get worse and then they get good again. And then the week after that, something else happens and, and you know, we're just... It's spiraling out of control, it seems. Uh, now Ontario has limited pro- uh, procurement of supplies from New York State due to their implementation of a Buy America law, which has taken effect this weekend. To talk more about all of this, Rocco Rossi is with us, president of the Ontario Chamber of Commerce, and is with us now. Rocco, thanks for taking the time. We appreciate this. Great pleasure, Scott, and I think leftover wine is a mortal sin. <laughs> It shouldn't be oh, allowed. There you go. It's the 11th well, commandment. There you go. It's written, not. it's written right into the prayer. Come on. <laughs> All right. So uh, how do we react to this, Rocco? Because honestly, it seems one day things are going pretty good. Then the next day we're going to hell in a handbasket here. How is the average Ontarian or Canadian to interpret this stuff? Well, look at, uh, let's, uh, let's look at a few facts. Number one, the, the U.S. is our single largest trading partner by far. Uh, Three quarters plus of all the trade that we do in the world, we do with the United States. So keeping the eye on the prize, the the NAFTA renegotiation is our number one priority. And and I think we need to stay focused uh, on that. And yes, there's a lot of, of bluster and you know, one day Mr. Trump is saying one thing around tariffs, and then there's an exemption, but the exemption is only until May 1st. Um, it's important for us to stay focused and to give the Premier full mark. She has been tireless in going to visit every governor and state capital mm. uh, that will have her, pointing out what what we all know that as important as it is for us, for many states, for over 20 U.S. states, Ontario, forget Canada, Ontario alone is their number one trading partner. Hmm. Uh, and when you add all of Canada, it's, it's the majority of U.S. states that uh, were very important to them as well. And that's why was very encouraged that uh, the Premier signed uh, last week an, an MOU with the Governor of Indiana, basically aimed at uh, enhancing economic relations between uh, the two entities and acknowledging how important it is 
for both entities. And we at the Ontario Chamber of Commerce have done joint MOUs with several U.S. Uh, state chambers, again, uh, talking about how important, how integrated our economies are. So with, with a lot of, of now trade war talk out there and retaliatory tariffs and, and the rest, that's, that's not something that we at the Ontario Chamber are supportive of. We want to stay focused on these positive messages, on the long game, as I said. Uh, and if you have to escalate, you know, as a, as a relatively small uh, country economically in the global world, our our best defense is to continue to support the international institutions like the World Trade Organization that are there to protect all actors and to enhance trade. And so if we're going to escalate, if we've got a problem with New York, let's take it to the WTO or let's act as a full country. We are not... So, Rocco, uh, why is, why is yeah. New York State reacting this way if they love us so much? If, if so many want to be a part of this, if so many uh, agree that NAFTA is needed uh, by both sides of the border, then why would, why would New York State react this way? And, and why are these things being implemented before this deal is even signed? Well, look, at, uh, it's, it's one thing, one state. There is some talk that maybe Texas as well. And you're going to have individual politicians who want to stand up and before elections uh, be able to say they're, they're standing up for uh, their businesses, their interests. Um, but, but we need, again, um, there's always going to be, there are always going to be elements that, um, that think in a different way, but the vast majority of businesses and state leaders are supportive of getting to a renewed deal, and we need to keep building on that goodwill. So is what's happening with New York State rhetoric, or is this, is this concrete policy that we have to adapt to? Well, to date, uh, it's rhetoric. There is legislation. I haven't seen any... Um, any RFPs going out that are limiting anybody yet. Uh, so it's enabling legislation on both sides. Um, and again, given that we're now in the midst of these conversations on NAFTA, we need to stay focused, uh, focused on that. And if we have uh, issues, there are channels to, to do it that, that don't throw gasoline on the fire. Are you surprised New York State has taken this uh, action considering their relationship with Ontario and Canada being a border state? Yeah, um, look, it, it is uh, surprising and, and unfortunate. It, it's interesting that historically um, it's been uh, the Democrats who've tended to be more protectionist and the Republicans uh, who have been traditionally uh, more more uh, free traders and um, New York does have a democratic uh, governor and so maybe it's back to the uh, to the but it's hard pattern. to tell with this president what side of the fence you're on here well that that's that's for sure and uh, you know maybe he sees this as three-dimensional chess and he's trying to put maximum pressure on us to get the best deal fair enough uh, we need to modernize 
the NAFTA deal. I mean, after all, when NAFTA was originally negotiated, Amazon was just a river in Brazil, mm-hmm. and uh, and now a whole bunch of stuff has changed. So, yeah, we should be we should be incorporating elements, but um, the number of jobs, and this is the interesting thing, as we've talked to the California Chamber, the Wisconsin Chamber, Kentucky, Colorado, dozens of others, all of them understand. Uh, how important and how integrated our trade and think think about uh, the automobile industry alone, which is such an important contributor to the Ontario uh, economy. In most of the cars that are assembled, the individual parts and components cross the border seven times before the car is finally hmm. assembled. So that's how tightly knit uh, the uh, the process and the supply chain is and trying to undo that makes no sense and will be damaging to both sides. So how will what's happening in New York State affect Ontarians and with and and what can win do in retaliation? Well, right right now what the legislation talks about is uh, specific state infrastructure uh, projects and structural steel, one element, not even concrete. So they're looking at um, uh, a specific, uh, specific kinds of projects, not all trade, um, and then specific elements within it. One of the, their justifications from their perspective is that um, cheap dumped Chinese steel is finding its way from China through Canada into uh, the U.S. How big a problem? We've got to protect against this. How big a problem is that, Rocky Rocco? Is that is this happening? Um, there, there may well be some of that happening, and so you've heard the prime minister say mm-hmm. that we're going to be redoubling our efforts. And part of part of negotiating and pushing for the exemption, which we in Mexico received, is to be vigilant. Uh, that were not used simply as a transshipment um, uh, venue uh, for steel that's being dumped. So should government be concentrating on that as opposed to uh, installing protectionist measures back to New York State? We have to be constantly looking at how can we uh, enhance our relationship with the U.S. It is our single largest uh, trading partner uh, millions of jobs on both sides of the border are dependent on this uh, working its way through. So let's stay focused on the big prize. Let's do uh, the necessary to show that uh, you know we're not going to uh, allow bad actors to uh, to operate. And then if we have individual conflict points, let's not uh, ratchet up re- rhetoric. Let's use existing institutions like the WTO, which are set up uh, to arbitrate in these kinds of things. Uh, and we saw, you know, it was interesting, the, the U.S. tried to slap uh, a very big uh, tariff on Bombardier and, and, their, uh, and their jets, and it got taken through one of these tribunals, and, and, uh, and Canada and the U.K. and the other places where Bombardier uh, operates in won uh, the judgment, and so mm. those have been taken off, and that is, as a, as a small player within the big world of trade, it's those kinds of institutions that we need to support because we stand to benefit uh, more 
from them than the big players. Are these prote- uh, protectionist measures going to work for the U.S.? I mean, uh, obviously, what you know, the whole art of the deal—it's about scaring yeah. somebody into a better deal. Uh, the bark often worse than the bite. Do we realize that at this point, and, and, and are allowing for that, or um, is is this working for them? Is it? Oh yeah, you know, uh, we do got to give them more. Um, look at I. I'm not at the negotiating table, so uh, I'm sure everyone is taking things with uh, with a grain of salt. Um, but um, no one. Uh, you know, unlike what the president has said, that, that trade wars are good and easy to win, no one wins trade wars, and and uh, all sides um, all sides get hurt, and it should be our responsibility and our our modus operandi to always uh, be building on the positive and where necessary use the institutions that are set up there um, to uh, to settle disputes, uh, but. We are we are a trading nation. We benefit from it, uh, and we need a renewed uh, NAFTA agreement. Uh, that being said, uh, do you think this is all part of the normal dance that goes on through these uh, discussions, Rocco, or, or or do you think this is the way of the future? Do you think we're heading down a protectionist route that it will take a long time to turn this back around? Look, everyone tries to do things to give their side advantage, and they want to cut the best possible deal. I totally uh, get that, and I think all of your listeners um, get that. But uh, the path of protectionism is not one that anyone will ultimately uh, benefit from. Uh, and so, you know, our our hope and and all of our efforts are. Uh, based on pushing forward to resolution and uh, and a new and enhanced deal. Uh, does it take a change in the presidency to change this course in the world? I don't think I don't think so because again, when it comes to uh, when it comes to trade, uh, you have to have the Congress on side. You have to have the governors on side. It's it's interesting that even in the um, in uh, the tariff discussion around steel and aluminum that um, that the president invoked, he was using a very uh, narrow power which he has, where he can unilaterally put these on in circumstances of national security. Uh, and in fact, part of our pushback on getting the exemption is, you know, how can you have a national security issue with with Canada? I mean, are you know, we're standing side by side in Afghanistan and elsewhere in the world. We fought uh, together in, in in two world wars and in wars and conflict around. We bled together. Uh, we have, uh, you know, we're, we we provide most of the uh, aluminum for. Uh, for their fighter jets, uh, we have joint command with respect to uh, NORAD and NATO. Uh, you know, really, really hard to uh, to make that uh, that case. Um, it, to do something more broadly, it has to go to Congress. It has to go uh, uh, state by state. And there, uh, Team Canada has been doing an exceptional job of of building out allies, identifying allies. 
Um, and uh, and we believe ultimately cooler heads will prevail. And obviously, we giving credit where credit is due. Ontario and and Canadian politicians have been doing a great job at promoting us uh, ahead of all of this and and getting out ahead of it. That being said, Rocco, will we come out the other end of this better as Canadians? Will we have a better deal? Look at uh, win, lose, or, or draw in terms of what the deal um, looks like at the end, and I, I think it will be an important and, and significant thing. Um, it, it also reminds us that um, the constant discussions that we've had uh, for, for several decades in Canada around the need to diversify our trading relationships uh, has been underscored. Um, one, so that not all our eggs are in one basket, both for the reason that, you know, you can have changes in administration where things will be made uncomfortable, but also if we have uh, more distributed uh, trade, we, we're in a better negotiating position. And so uh, we have signed recently um, uh, Canada-European trade, uh, agreement that's been ratified and, and needs to be leveraged and exploited more. We've recently signed uh, and are ratifying the, uh, the, the Trans-Pacific Partnership with many South Asian uh, countries, and we need to be uh, uh, expanding and diversifying our trade, both because it's, it's, it's a good thing for our businesses to have more markets, and also because ultimately it gives us greater leverage in any negotiation that we do have because no one can think, well, hey, you know, 75% of you uh, is dependent on uh, on us, so we've got a big hammer to hit you over the head with. Hmm. Rocco Rossi has been with us, President of the Ontario Chamber of Commerce. Ontario has limited procurement of supplies from New York State due to their implementation of a Buy America policy. Rocco, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. A great pleasure. All the best. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. A rally will be held in support of Doug Ford. He is in our area. Uh, uh, the traveling road show continues, of course, as uh, the election coming up on June, June 7th. Uh, Doug, uh, Doug Ford, leader of the Ontario PC Party, is with us now. Doug, thanks so much for taking the time. We, we appreciate this. Well, thanks for having me on, Scott. And I, I'll tell you, I love going to Hamilton and I think the last time I was there, I was telling you how much support we have in Hamilton, even when we're in the city of Toronto. Where Rob and I always sit down and say, man, those, we, we get a lot of letters and calls from Hamilton. So we, we love the uh, hardworking people of Hamilton. Uh, Hamilton traditionally been an NDP uh, stronghold. Why should Hamilton's vote BC this time, Doug? Well, first of all, we, we know that uh, over 40% of uh, traditional NDP and union members voted for myself and voted for Rob, and I think it's going to be a lot higher than 40% this time. Uh, we, we represent the hard-working blue-collar folks. They, they're uh, grassroots people that haven't had their voice heard. They get constantly ignored. They're frustrated when they see billions of dollars being wasted by uh, the wind liberals. They, they open up their hydro bill and, and they're frustrated. And, well, I'm going I'm to tell the, the people of Hamilton we're going to do what we say we're going to do. We're going to put money back into their pockets instead of the government's pocket. The government just constantly wants to gouge the people right across Ontario. We're going to make sure we bring good-paying jobs, union, non-union, and uh, that's we're going to have this uh, this province, the most prosperous province 
anywhere in North America to do uh, business in. Doug, we have asked you about LRT before on this show, and you, you've said that you supported it, uh, and so on and so forth. I'm, I've got to ask you again, and the reason is is that uh, uh, C- Councillor Donna Skelly, who is running for your party, has been yes. a vocal opponent of, of of LRT. Are the two of you on the same page on this issue? Sure, I, I think uh, we're on the same page. I always believe in uh, letting the people decide. Uh, look, look what happened in Toronto when I was a councillor. Uh, everyone wanted subways in, in Toronto, and the councillors uh, voted against their own people. So I believe in letting the people decide. If we hear from enough people in, in Hamilton uh, what they want, the difference is uh, what what the Liberals said to the people of Hamilton, you take this, ram it down your throat, or we're taking all the funding away. So we aren't going to do that. If people want the LRT, um, the majority of people, we're going to move forward based on where they want it. That's first. Secondly, if they don't want it, we're still going to keep the money into infrastructure in Hamilton. So it's going to be up to the people of Hamilton. I'm going to listen to people like Donna. Uh, she She's talking to the, the people of Hamilton uh, every single day, and that's the advice we're going to get is off the, the people. I believe they're the ones that should make the decision. Are you worried, and, that, Are you worried, Doug, that after we've spent all this money and we've gone as far as we have, it seems like, you know, here for us in Hamilton, we're voting on this every second day and we arrive at the same conclusion. Are, are, are you worried that we're going to get so far with this deal and then scrap it and lose all the funds? No. That we've no, already I'm spent? Gonna, yeah, well, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to do that. we got to see how much uh, money has been spent. We never know because the Liberals always hide the the books and the figures on us, so you never get a clear picture when it comes to the liberals. They, they constantly mislead people. We're going to be transparent. We're going to uh, make sure we we run this uh, province uh, with accountability and transparency and integrity. And we haven't seen any of those uh, with the liberal government. But uh, I stand behind the people of Hamilton. Whatever they want, they're going to decide, not the government. See, I take a different uh, approach uh, that, uh, that the regular politicians do they they believe they're, they're smarter than the people i believe that people are smarter than uh, politicians we're going to make uh, a choice based on what they uh, decide not not on what uh, a bunch of politicians in the back room decide uh, obviously uh, last week kathleen wins liberals uh, revealed their budget and and so on and so forth sort of a, a i guess a finale to a, a week of promises uh, you know promising everything from this to that to whatever uh, after that a poll conducted showing that the gap between the liberals and the conservatives is a bit more narrow than it once was what are your thoughts on that and, and how do you respond to this grocery list from the premier well, first of all, I, I, I don't believe in polls. Polls are for dogs, and uh, I don't trust the liberal pollsters. They always, you know, they always want to, they always want to make it look better. We we know the the numbers out there, and uh, you can't, you know, they they think that they can go, and they think people are stupid. They they're taking their money and promising the world. You know, for a second there, as I thought I was watching the Oprah Winfrey Winfrey show, that saying you get a free car, you get a free car, hmm. everyone's going to get everything free. People are smarter than that. Uh, they're sick and tired of spending 50% of their income on taxes, and uh, we're, we're going to make sure we put money back in their, their pocket. And once we save money, then we're going to make sure that uh, we have money to take care of uh, everything from daycare to seniors, and and that's that's what we believe in, in lower taxes and lower uh, hydro rates and get rid of the carbon tax and create great-paying jobs. That's our main focus, and uh, they can go out and keep spending money and putting ourselves more in debt. We're the most indebted region in the world 
the, the largest uh, subnational debt in the entire world. And you ask anyone, uh, you know, even seniors, uh, healthcare is obviously very important that we're going to focus on. But number one issue that I've talked to seniors is take care of my children, take care of my grandchildren, make sure my grandchildren have a good education, make sure my children have good paying jobs. That's the number one uh, issue when I talk to seniors. Uh, the, the win liberals positioning uh, care not cuts, uh, fearing, scaring people with saying that the, all you're going to do is cut everything. Uh, how do you respond to the care not cuts? Well, I, I don't believe in cuts. Uh, I, that's not my vocabulary. Driving efficiencies with the taxpayers' money, running it more responsible, just like people run their households. If every household ran the way the liberals run the government with your hard-earned tax dollars, every single household, uh, their, their mortgages would be foreclosed because you can't spend more than what you have. And we're going to make sure that we increase services, not decrease them. We're going to find efficiencies uh, throughout the system. There's so many backroom deals with all the cronyism uh, with the liberals and the political elites and political establishment. They're just fully taking advantage of the, the grassroots people. They're paying for it. And, uh, it's, you know, the, the gravy train, as Rob used to say, the gravy train's coming to an end. The taxpayers are going to have a voice. The grassroots people are going to have a voice. Not the old uh, liberal cronies that have been sucking at the trough for the last 15 years. All right, a couple, I know you got to run here, Doug. We've only got a limited amount of time. Uh, a couple of questions from a listener. Um, Kathleen Wynn, uh, great at campaigning. Uh, how are you preparing to battle her during the leaders' debates? Can you keep your cool, says Howard. No, Howard, I can assure you, I can, I can keep my cool. I've been in this game for, uh, boy, probably 30 years, and uh, there's no better grassroots campaigner than the Fords. I think people know that. I don't underestimate Kathleen Wynn for a second, and I've, I've told her that in person. Uh, I told Kathleen when she called me to congratulate me, I said, Kathleen Wynn, you're, you're a great, uh, you know, great campaigner, great debater, but you never debated Doug Ford before. So once uh, we get on the stage, uh, I'm going to hold her uh, very accountable on every single penny that she's wasted, all the backroom deals, the political corruption that uh, we've seen nonstop with this uh, provincial government. Uh, that's all coming to an end. It's, it's about time that people have a voice and we're going to start respecting the taxpayer. Uh, another listener question. My understanding is that you believe rent controls on apartment dwellers should be removed and landlords should have free reign on how much they can raise rents. Is this your stance? No, I, I don't ever remember ever saying saying that uh, whatsoever. I, I want to make sure that uh, we, we let the market dictate that uh, we try to lower rents. When you, you know, when you cap stuff, that that's where there's... Uh, there's problems, but I'm all for the, the front-line renters. That's my base, the people that are renting day in and day out that can't afford uh, to buy a house or a condominium. I want them to be able to afford a, a house one day. I want them to be able to afford a, a condo that they can, they can purchase. And uh, in the meantime, I'm going to make sure that uh, we... And that, I don't think there's too many of them, but there's always some slumlords, as we say, that uh, have run-down buildings. I'm going to hold them accountable. Uh, my base are people that uh, rent uh, rent condos, no, rent uh, apartments. All right, last one here, Doug. Uh, obviously, uh, the U.S. getting in protectionist wow. mode. We're hearing comments. You know, uh, New York State's by American law. Uh, the Wynn government has retaliated, saying that uh, you know if if that's the way it goes, it's tit for tat. How do you 
How, how do you challenge, how do you uh, defend Ontario's interests when it comes to things like NAFTA and, and well, President Trump? First of all, all Kathleen Wynne has to do is look in the mirror and ask why we aren't competitive. I'll tell you why we aren't competitive. We have the highest hydro rates in North America. She wants to tax this carbon tax. It's going to make us uncompetitive. I'm going to get rid of the carbon tax to make sure we're competitive. We're going to make sure we lower taxes and, and lower hydro rates. Uh, you know, well, that's all she, she believes in is raising taxes, making us more uncompetitive. I can tell you, I don't want to start a fight with our, our biggest trading partner to the south. I want to work with them. We're going to be running those ads like New York State is running. I have a facility in uh, Chicago, and I get letters every single week from areas throughout the U.S. saying, come and open up in, in our uh, in our state. We'll, we'll give you a tax-free zone. We'll help you with your building. Up in Ontario is come to Ontario. We're going to have every rule and regulation you possibly think of. We'll have the highest hydro rates, highest taxes, highest water bills, carbon tax, and we're supposed to be competitive? I'm a businessman. I understand about being competitive. I understand the market, the largest market in the world is to the south of us. It's about time we start becoming more competitive and competing against the Americans, but not only competing against them, take advantage of the great, great amount of business that's south of the border. Uh, I don't believe in starting trade wars like Kathleen Wynne. Kathleen Wynne, look in the mirror. You're the reason. You're the reason we're in the trouble we're in right now in Ontario being uncompetitive. Doug Ford has been with us, leader of the Ontario Progressive Conservative Party in Hamilton uh, tonight and up at Carmen's uh, visiting. Yeah, and come, yeah, come by Carmen's for sure. Hamilton at 630, everything's free. Uh, I'd love to meet the people. They're, I just love the people of Hamilton. I'll, I'll tell you, hardworking people, and uh, they're being overtaxed by, by Kathleen Wynne uh, as, as we talk right now. Leader of the Ontario PCs, Doug Ford. Doug, thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. Thanks so much, Scott. Really appreciate it. Look forward to uh, seeing you tonight if you're free. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.